0: Welcome to a new episode of Becoming a Post Growth Planner Obstacles and Challenges to Changing Roles and Practices. My name is Christian Lamker. I'm Assistant Professor for Sustainable Transformation and Regional Planning at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And my guest today is Antje Broens from the University of Trier.
1: Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm Antje, Antje Broens. I'm a professor in geography for governance and sustainable development. And there I'm head of a a really great team, and we call ourselves the Governance and Sustainability Lab.
0: Governance and Sustainability, this also takes us how to how you enter the debates about post-growth and planning from the directions of sustainability, but also the Global South and questions of the interface between science and society. We will get back to that later. But to have a start, how would you position post-growth in relation to the history of especially global sustainability debates?
1: Well, yes, that, that's really a great, but also a huge question. And I would try to answer it in that way. So my, my studies, particularly in Ghana, in West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, really led me to, um, the, the core finding that like, we we really live in a complex world where our decisions even those about sustainability transformations have huge impacts on lives and livelihoods in other regions and so it is when we look back in history so our wealth and our modes of consumption um Ulrich Brand and Markus Wissen would call it the imperial mode of living really caused um, the unsustainability and injustice in the global South. And if we really want to talk about global sustainability, then we should also focus on these injustices and unsustainabilities. And that in a nutshell really, um yeah, sort of underpins and informs my understanding of the relation. And that again, is then also part of post-growth thinking, I would say, that we should also look at the global interconnections and uh, complexities.
0: We have also met at the Dortmund conference in February 2023, where you gave a keynote on governance of sustainability. And in that, uh, you also mentioned that sustainability is fundamentally about justice. I understand this kind of even global dimensions, the global south, could you briefly explain to our listeners at which point or how you recognize that sustainability is fundamentally about justice, especially when maybe maybe making the step towards post-growth?
1: Yeah, well, um, so even if we look back at the history of the sustainability concept um that was informed by the Bundland Commission and the later discussion about that, it was always fundamentally about justice. It was always about how um, to supply goods and services to people. There, it was rather framed in this global north-south perspective, so um, that it was a focus on poverty, for example. Uh, But that have been the origin of the sustainability debate. And even if we look um, at, for example, the German or the European context, of um, sustainability. We realize uh, that we can achieve sustainability and sustainable development only if we look at justice. And we could look at almost every scale. We could look at the local scale, uh, the city scale, for example, and we see huge injustices manifested in the lives in cities. um, for example, who has access to green spaces in a close distance, just to, to ask one example. So that would be like uh, an entry point for me to always ask who benefits from certain goods and services uh, and who carries the burdens and the harms um, and who has control over decision making, who has control over resources. And this framing is really fundamental for my thinking about sustainable development.
0: Does this mean in sustainable development that we should also focus much more both on sufficiency, on what we need to live, and on the other side also on maybe maximum limits or also clear cuts on what we take out of a limited stock of resources?
1: Absolutely. So I would fully agree to that. So sufficiency plays a, a key role in that. To really ask the question so what is enough to have a good life and of course we need to define good life and i would say well uh shelter is part of that and um well enough food and and water and of course energy but certainly a good life does not mean that you have have the right to for example emit a lot of co2 emissions and that then ultimately cause climate change or that you um, have a um, a dietary style, like a food consumption style, that uh, exploits resources in other worlds and regions of that. So sufficiency is is like a key paradigm, I would say. Uh, but also the other strategies that we know, like efficiency and coherency and thinking in circular. Uh, terms, for example, circular economies is also part of that. So I would also strongly argue for um, different strategies that in combination really can inform us how a good life looks like and um, how many resources we consume and, um, well, um, are able to consume, but also, so are allowed to consume in a context of um, really, um, well, yeah, like it's, it's really about taking responsibility in the end, I would say. So having and living a responsible life.
0: Yeah, okay. and this we talk about inherently positive things, the good life, what we need to live. So this mm-hmm. sounds um, a good way to go. But what would you say? How can this idea be more convincing to be more taken up at a broader scale? As a principle, there are some quite positive ingredients in, in all these thoughts.
1: It's really about to, how to make this real utopias happen, but also how to um, perhaps even communicate that properly and discuss it with various like actor groups, um, but also like different people that perhaps never thought about uh, these things, because that is perhaps also like one observation that I do that, of course, in our intellectual academic bubble um, of post-growth thinkers and sustainability scholars, we find these ideas quite convincing. But if you are like a part of a socioeconomic strata that uh, really uh, struggles with the everyday life, then it's perhaps, um, it sounds really academic. It sounds really intellectual. It sounds really far away from, yes, your very everyday struggles. Um, and, And I think that is exactly like the challenge we have to go, how to, how to how to do that? Perhaps we need really need to go uh, other ways, like um, with, for example, um, visualizations, with art projects, but also with really co-producing knowledge. For example, with um, people that like work in the health sector, just to name one sector that is sometimes very far away from these um, discussions. So, yeah, I I think I do not have like the one and only answer to your question, but I think it's really about, um, well, leaving our silo, our siloed system of um, the intellectual academic bubble.
0: Would you say we might need other different terms uh, or maybe even fewer terms and more things that are closely aligned to daily life worlds, worlds of people? Absolutely.
1: I think if we talk about the transformation to sustainability, and I would frame post-growth as one strategy towards the transformation to sustainability, then I would say it's fundamentally about changing and altering um, the everyday, the everyday of all of us, like all of us that live in Europe, for example, just to to have a like a regional focus now. So, and if we do that, if we ask that to fundamentally change the everyday, then we also need to go to where people um, fulfill everyday practices, be it that they are mobile and um, they have a distance to take. For, for example, from their home to their office um, or their workplace uh, or what they consume, what they buy um, in terms of food and so on. So we really need to go there and engage with people. Um, but then uh, it will be at one point also about the costs and the prices and, and what it takes, right, from people, definitely.
0: Yeah, so in, in my experience, post-growth or growth-oriented problems are quite visible for many people, though maybe not using this concept, but especially in terms of limited resources, of increasing pri- increased prices that often relate to a certain way of positioning economic agendas and also perceiving solutions to problems. Where would you say does post-growth really help us to shed maybe new lights on problems that we perceive in our daily lives? And on the solutions, the positive solutions, the ways forward that we can imagine. Let's stay maybe in the European context. I,
1: I think I see it on different levels. Like if we, for example, look at um, how how people conceive their workplace, then there are increasing. Uh, there is an increasing number of studies that say that um, many people are not happy with their workplace. Um, what they do, how much they get for it, um, and how much they get for it is not only the money they are, uh, they get for it, but also perhaps, um, like the the reputation and um, like acknowledging what people do and are able to do and the good ideas they have. That is just one part if we look at the um, at the workplace and what people do for a living. But if we look at people that are not employed, that are unemployed, um, or the elderly people, or even very young students that have been um, excluded from school during Corona times. We also see that people are increasingly um, lonely so and get into depression. So I think everything what we are, if we look at the individual, uh, we see that people Suffer in terms of mental health, and perhaps they also suffer in terms of not being part of a community. And that would be here my argument post growth planning and a, a differently organized economic system, an economic system that is part of the social, could also bring people back, like individuals, back to a community where they feel recognized and where they, like, um, are together with other doing useful things. And I think that is a co-benefit, but perhaps also the real utopia uh, a post-growth world could look like. Uh, an utopia that is really driven by alternative economies and alternative uh, social relations
0: positioning uh, humans more central the social parts of sustainability that is really the core of how I would also frame post-growth planning but what would you say are the major obstacles why we face such a hardship to move to changing something whereas these problems are well acknowledged if i open any website or newspaper news websites it is all over but what is the major challenge or what do you see the obstacles why is it so hard to move a step forward from these problems to say we at least do one step and then maybe following once
1: that's that's a, again a tricky question i would say um but the perhaps like sad thing is that if i open my newspaper I read different things. I read like um, rather the depressing things that, for example, uh, right wing parties are gaining momentum. Um, And um, usually like these parties uh, are rather against uh, any transformation towards sustainability. Um, just to to mention like one political, very important movement. Throughout Europe, but uh, throughout the globe, I would even say, like, even internationally, it's what we face. So I see, like, um, political movements that are rather, um, opting and arguing against, um, any, um, any knowledge that is rooted in sustainability and climate uh, discourses. Um, and I, and I also see, like, These power nexus between the economy and the political system that is rather than on a macro structure and that is so powerful in the way it it is a major hindrance to any like perhaps even incremental change uh, on the local level um, that I sometimes also don't know where really the leverage points are. I mean, how can we upscale all the nice pioneer activities and niches that we see uh, and where is the leverage and perhaps really the leverage is with the the planning system right to really plan other worlds to plan other cities where we have different goals and objectives that we that we really follow and to learn from these good examples and to um to to create different alliances between the economy, civil society and the political actors and planners.
0: Yeah, so you see quite a role for planning in that and also for planning to bring things together. Did we maybe over the past 10, 15 years focus too much on the individual on what individuals can contribute and maybe forgot a bit how to bring this all together to then really develop change that is not only a small niche or pocket somewhere, but that extends to a region the nation, maybe even whole Europe.
1: Yes, I would think so. And perhaps that is even or has been even like a very powerful strategy by uh, powerful economic interests to rather always um, say that like it's about individual consumption, right? So the, the individual with the, the very own consumption mode and consumption pattern is able to make a difference. But this uh, individualism strategy is also like a huge, um, well, how, how could one frame it? Um, it, it? It's really, it's leading us um, back or um, far away from the, the structures that need to be changed. And that is, again, the structure of the economic system. And it's uh, the structure of how the economy is organized. For example, by underlying infrastructure and here then again, the state comes into play because the state has the opportunity and the planners, uh, they have the opportunity to plan infrastructures differently. Um, Well, and but I think, yes, that is what happened the last 10, 15 years in uh, a very neoliberal uh, realm, let's put it that way. Um, to, to only focus um, on the individual and how the individual can change the unsustainability of the current system.
0: Planners are somehow a bit of both. You're both part of the structure, uh, part of the state, the city, but also these are individuals planning within these uh, structures, which also can in itself cause quite some tension. How could we maybe support then planners in this this struggle between the different child pro- growth-based problems, within visions, utopias that are there, and then maybe to have at least more of these debates.
1: First of all, I would argue that we really need um, a more reflexive knowledge, also in in planning, curricular, and in like how to teach um, future planners to really let them also think about the relation of. Knowledge and system knowledge and transformational knowledge, and that these are different knowledges. One is like a, for example, even evidence based or underpinned knowledge about different sectors, systems, like the natural and the societal system, for example. But that this is different from knowing what to do and where like we want to go, which is rather an ethical question. And the ethical question comes later and is driven by normative ideas. And I think I would always like if if I am teaching, I try, all, try to usually um, discuss that with students. So what is really the fact-based knowledge here and what comes into that because we have specific belief systems, mental models, uh, perhaps even um, a knowledge which is underpinned by our our very own biography that I grown up, for example, in a very rural area where, of course, I needed uh, a car and to have a driving license, whereas other students who grow that grew up in uh, larger cities, perhaps have different mental models in their minds. And I'll try to to reflect on that. And I think more reflexivity and a more nuanced knowing of the diversity of the world is always useful uh, for planners.
0: Well, does this then mean that planning is should really be much more about ethics, uh, moral decisions, values, uh, about also the conflicts that we might not be able to solve by let's say any rational scientific methods but that we will need to solve by taking decisions and working with the advantages disadvantages the winners and losers
1: yes absolutely so planning for me is about to engage with ambivalences with controversies with the um with contested ideas with um everything that is around that even with um, counter planning right so and, and, and I have the impression that within the last like years or even decade, one or two decades, we really entered the post-political era also in, in the planning uh, discourse that we, we are seeking for the consensus. We are seeking for uh, decisions and pathways where everyone is on board. And of course, that is like in an ideal world. Uh, That would be great, but we are dealing with different interests. And sometimes these interests are very powerful in terms of institutional, institutional interests uh, and economic interests. So I think it's always good to be aware that in the end, um, there are these controversies and it's about, um, well, yeah, dealing with with that exactly.
0: Yeah, if I look a bit at both of us, then we are maybe also a bit part of both the problem and the possible solution. Because as researchers and educators, we can take different positions to spatial planning practice. And I would say we are also a bit maybe torn between the consensus seeking, which would be a wonderful way to solve issues, and then maybe a reality that doesn't exactly fit to that model and that doesn't develop in the way that we would hope for. So. Would you recognize flaws in contemporary approaches and how could we also position science research more effectively in that regard? As there's certainly not a lack of researchers, of scientists, of scientific knowledge available, but a clear lack of transforming, of changing, of actually um, moving to the doing, let's say.
1: Yes, and I think that is also perhaps part of how the academic system and the universities develop within also that wider socioeconomic context in the last years, right? So if we look at reputation systems within universities, these are at times very far away from what uh, the solving of societal um, and socioecological problems would need in terms of uh, knowledge creation, but also in terms of knowledge co-production. So, uh, of course, we need also here different uh, criteria for what um, good and relevant and original research is. Um, And some of us, like those with tenured positions, they um, have perhaps a bit more agency in that and perhaps even more freedom to do that kind of transformative research, whereas others, they certainly do not have Um, like even um, they they do not have the freedom to do so, right? Because they they are themselves struggling within an an unjust um, system, if you like. So, but yes, we have responsibility. And I think like, at least for me, that is what I aim to do, right? Like being based at Trier University, where uh, I think I could say that I created a new institute in geography, right? Because um, I, uh, or like, of course, with my colleagues from physical geography, uh, we, we had the opportunity to select, like, I think now four uh, new professors, and we created a new g- geography department that is centered around a critical, heterodox, diverse, Uh, take on uh, space and society and economy in order to change the world uh, and to to make transformation happen. So, yes, we have the responsibility and we have a differentiated agency.
0: Sounds like a great approach. Let me just briefly follow up on that. There is of the challenge when you think of co-producing knowledge, working together on societal challenges, to become also a bit one-sided maybe on these ideas that are immediately valued from another side, from a politics and practice side, where some of the also needed discussions might be quite critical and quite conflictual at first sight. So do you see good ideas how to keep these debates still possible when working together with other actors? and? And also ensuring to maybe keep even alternatives part of of research and of research debates.
1: Yeah, well, I think that again goes back to being open and reflexive uh, on the very own uh, theories and assumptions, but also on the very own blind spots. And I think um, that your question really relates perhaps um, to what I would call boundary work like really creating good conditions for boundary work like boundaries um between different disciplines or between different um theories or approaches and how to navigate that um and yeah i think here ingredients are like respect and openness and um like really seeking for perhaps even diverse uh, explanations and diverse takes on the same research question. Um, well, yes, and uh, that, is, that is important to keep that in mind, yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah, in this podcast, uh, we have collected a number of diverse statements towards the very end about what post-growth planning could be or what it is from the individual uh, perspectives. So then before we finish this episode, I would like to, you to finish the sentence for me. Post-growth planning is?
1: To change the understanding of the world.
0: That's a nice final statement. So I would say let's continue changing this together. With all our uh, listeners today feel invited to join this further search for finding, developing what post-growth planning is. And from my side, many thanks to Antje for joining me today and for sharing your insights from Trier University and also globally.
1: Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be here.